0: Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counter-formational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Go ahead and be seated. Good morning to all of you. It's good to see you all again. My name is Justin, if we haven't met, I am the executive pastor here uh, at the church. And uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who missed last week, our soft launch, uh, man, you missed basically the best Sunday of church uh, that, that's ever happened. And so uh, I, feel, I feel sad for you, but it's really good to see you all back here. Uh, we're excited about this new season uh, of the church. And, uh, and so we're continuing in this series called Doctrines for All Souls, which is just a continuation of our very long series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Before we get into the text, I want to tell you a little story, a story that I read this week. I read an article that was a review of a book, and that's kind of where my reading life is right now. I'm reading reviews of books more than books themselves. Uh, But it told the story of Captain James Cook who was a British explorer. Many of you have probably heard his name before, uh, but uh, he's famous for his trips uh, from England to North America, North America to Australia and uh, uh, around the Pacific Ocean. Uh, But long before he settled in Australia, he was uh, setting out for a journey and trying to remedy what was the scourge of many kind of transatlantic or transpacific voyages, which was scurvy. Scurvy was a disease that killed hundreds and hundreds of sailors uh, during this period, and he thought he had the remedy for it. Unfortunately, that remedy was sauerkraut sauerkraut, If he, he believed that if his men would just eat sauerkraut on the journey, that that would keep them from coming down with scurvy and dying. Well, the problem is that in England during this time, sauerkraut was not especially popular, and for good reason. It's disgusting. Uh, if you've ever had it before, uh, there's a good reason why these guys didn't want to eat it, and so he devised a plan where instead of forcing the men to eat sauerkraut, he had the cook make sauerkraut, but only serve it to the captain and the officers and, and keep it from the men, not an attempt to kill the rest of the men, but because he believed that once sauerkraut was served only to the officers, that then the men would want it. They would see it as a status symbol and begin to request it, and that is exactly what happened the first couple of days of the voyage. Only the officers got the sauerkraut, and the men's interest was piqued, and they realized, even though it's absolutely disgusting and inedible in any form, uh, I want it because it, only the officers get it. And guess how many men died on that journey? Zero. Broke a record. Never had happened before that no men died on a journey. And it was all because Captain Cook appealed to the desire for status in his And I I just think that is a perfect frame for today's story. So we are, as Pastor Harvey read, in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, and uh, let's, let's jump right in says, then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, what's funny to me about this is it's about 90 miles from Jerusalem to Gennesaret where Jesus and his disciples are. And these Pharisees walk 90 miles, right? They're not driving, they're not flying, This camels at best, right? They are going 90 miles to Jesus and his disciples to go, hey, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? Like, are these guys moms or something? Like, I I can see my wife, who's kind of crazy about washing hands, walking 90 miles to make sure I am, uh, uh, you know, making the kids wash their hands before they eat, right? So this is the question. They literally go 90 miles to ask Jesus and his disciples, Jesus his answer is this. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Now, this is, this is not a move I would normally let my kids get away with, right? This happens all the time, right? One kid goes, hey, why are you doing this? And the other kid responds by going, well, why do you do this? Right? I, I hate that move. I never let him do it. But it's Jesus, so, you know, he gets away with whatever he wants. And he's saying to them, pushing back on their tradition, going, you break the law of God in order to follow your tradition. So don't, don't jam up my disciples because we're not following your traditions when you actually have your traditions trumping the command of God, right? It doesn't go over well. For God commanded Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, I'm sorry that I'm stopping so much, but as a father, this is easily my favorite verse in the Bible, right? Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. I I thought about getting that tattooed onto my children, but like laws and stuff. And so I didn't, but I think this is a very important verse for, oh, none of my kids are in the room. Never mind. So the idea here is this. One of the Ten Commandments, right, like the pretty important commandments of God is honor your father and mother. This this is core to God's teaching to his people. And the Jews had developed this this series of traditions, right, and there were many such traditions. One of them was about all of the hand washing that we'll, we'll talk more about here in a moment. But another was something called Corban. And this story is also told in Mark chapter 7. If you want kind of a longer treatment of it, you can go look at Mark 7, 1 through 20 or 23, something like that. But basically, the idea was this. The Pharisees and religious leaders created this kind of loophole workaround so that um, children, primarily men, male children, could dedicate certain uh, amounts of money to the church or to god and so what would happen is if there was a dispute between father and son or parents and son instead of the children being responsible to care for their parents into their old age which was again very common during this time basically a child could say well the money that i was going to use to care for you in your old age i am now declaring Corban, or anointed or set aside for the purposes of God. And it was basically like this religious legal loophole where a child could kind of appear to be very holy, right? Like wanting to set aside money for God, but in effect was just kind of sticking it to their parents and avoiding the responsibility of caring for them in their old age. So Jesus says, listen, one of the Ten Commandments Is to honor your father and mother and yet your tradition has established a way for children to not only not honor their father and mother but actually kind of stick it to them under the guise of religiosity and holiness I mean who could condemn a person for wanting to give extra money to the church but, but in reality, this was not a, a kind of move of holiness. Externally, it looked like this holy move. But internally, Jesus understood that this was just a way to avoid honoring father and mother. And Jesus is not pleased. Verse 7. Verse 6, he says, You, you need not honor his father and mother for the sake, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Their tradition trumped. God's command. Verse seven, you hypocrites. Now, Jesus is the ultimate contextualizer, and so he understood the language that people would understand. He says, you hypocrites. Well, this word hypocrites literally means, in the Greek, actor. Okay, so if you read other Greek writer playwrights like Sophocles and other playwrights that I don't know, uh, they would talk about actors, and the word there is the word hypocrites. That's the idea. This is very L.A. of Jesus to use this as an illustration, right? He, listen to what he's saying. These, these Pharisees walk 90 miles to confront Jesus and his disciples about their lack of handwashing, washing, Right? They put on this kind of pious external vision of themselves to say, listen, we care so much about these traditions. And, and to be clear, these traditions began in a good place, right? The Jews take very seriously the word of God and the commands of God. And so many of these traditions that were generations old began as a desire to honor God and honor God's word. So, for instance, the Sabbath is something that the Jews took very seriously. And God says, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, do not work on the Sabbath. And so, early on, the Jews would say, okay, well, what does it mean to work? Because we don't want to offend God, we want to honor the sabbath and so they would go okay well you know nobody works on the day you can't plow your field you can't lead your horses you can't or or camels or whatever they were doing and like they established what that is and then then they would kind of go well okay but like what is work technically like can we can we make dinner is making dinner work and they answered Yes. And all the wives were like, yes, right? Like, so yes, that's making dinner. So okay, so the day before Sabbath, then, we're going to prepare all of the meals for the following day so that we don't have to work on the Sabbath. And they go, okay, well, can we go like visit our friends on the Sabbath? Because we, have to have to, we would have to walk a mile, and that's pretty far. That's a lot of work. And all the people who don't like walking were like, yeah, that's work. We shouldn't do that. And so they established, like, how far can you walk? I mean, it got as detailed, one of my favorite uh, illustrations of this, it got as detailed as they defined how many boot, uh, how many nails can be in the boots you wear on the Sabbath day because a certain weight of carrying those boots would be considered work, and so they defined it, and they're like, well, it's probably, I don't know, probably 12, because there's 12 tribes of Israel, and that made sense or something. But they defined it down to that detail. Initially, again, the the instinct there, the the motivation is, we want to honor the Sabbath and make sure that we are not working on the Sabbath, because that's what God told us to do. But then it kind of gets ridiculous as it kind of plays itself out to be defining the actual number of nails in a shoe so that you're not working like who knows what that is well this this washing thing was the same kind of deal right god did give a command to the priests to do some ritual washing before they handled the scriptures. And before they did a number of different kind of priestly duties to to define what was clean and unclean. To acknowledge like there are things that we do that are kind of unclean things, natural things. And before we come before the word of God or we carry out our priestly duties, we want to make sure we acknowledge that and purify ourselves because we want to honor God. This was a command that God gave to the priests. But then what the priest did was said, well, let's play that out to its illogical end. And the command that God gave the priest, the priest then gave to the people, even though God did not give that command to the people. And it's a way of, of kind of extending the control, extending the religion out beyond God's intention for it, and it becomes something very different at that point. So back to verse 7, Jesus looks at these religious leaders and says, You actors, you, you're playing a role of holy person." You're playing a role of pious person who cares so much about the washings that you would walk 90 miles simply to confront this new rabbi and his disciples about their washing habits. And that appears very, very holy. And you're clearly like, take your, your acting craft very seriously, your method and this whole thing, right? Like, but you're acting. It's not real. It's a role you're playing. And he, he, in fact, quotes uh, Isaiah at the end of verse 7. And I'll just say, anytime Jesus quotes the Old Testament at you, you're in trouble, like universally. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Two things Jesus says here. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, you've built this kind of religious world that has all the trappings of religion, all the trappings of worship, but I see your heart, something that only Jesus can do. Like he goes, "I, I see through this mask, I see through the role that you're playing, I see what you actually love, I see what you actually want, I see what's actually motivating you. So you may have all these other people fooled because you're you're so dedicated that you walked 90 miles to jam us up about washing our hands properly, but I see what you really want. And it's not me. It's not God. It's not actually the things you're portraying that you want. I see through all that. These people cannot see what I see, but I see it. That's one. Two, he says, in vain do they worship me, Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So anytime the scriptures say something is done in vain, it basically just means it's useless. It's of no real substance or purpose. So so you you do this thing, you worship, but it's useless worship. It's pointless worship. Why? He goes, because you teach as doctrine what is actually just the commandments of men. You say we have to do the washings. You say we have to, you know, do what we do on the Sabbath and control, you know, each other this way and that. Like, you have all these religious practices and you have established them as if they are the commands of God, but they are not. They are not doctrines of God. They are simply commandments of men. And so what you've done is you've swapped out the the doctrine of God. You've swapped out the word of God, which has real power to change. You've taken something that has supernatural divine power, the commands of God, and you've swapped those things out for your traditions, which have no power whatsoever beyond maybe behavior control for a while. That's all you got. So you traded out something that has real power for something that has almost none. Almost none. And so your worship is useless. Your worship is in vain because you're relying on something that has no actual power. Now, what's consistently remarkable to me is that humans throughout the centuries, and it's not just the Jews. The Jews get a bad rap because they're the ones in the Bible doing it, but but it's not just the Jews. We have, for for centuries, looked at the scriptures and said, this is great. There's 10 commandments. There's actually 613 commandments in the Old Testament, right? There's the 10, and then there's 603 that just kind of build out those original 10. 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and Christians, Jews and Christians throughout the generations have looked at that and gone, okay, that's a pretty good start, but I've got more I could add. 613 is a good, nice number. It's a little odd, but, but may, I, I want more. Let's add clarity around the washings. Let's, let's, let's extend what God asks of the priests to all the people. Let's define how far you can walk on the Sabbath. Let's define the weight of your shoes on the Sabbath. Let's define all of these things and make them as if they are doctrines of God, even though they are, in fact, just commandments of men. Let's build, let's make this religion bigger and more intrusive and more controlling. Why do we do that? It's not just them. We do the same thing. Every generation of religious people, and it's not just Christians either. Like religious people in general do this. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We add more and more and more. And we teach as if what we like and what are our preferences as if they are the commands of God. Why? Why do people play at religion? Jesus looks at these Pharisees and goes, everyone else sees the outside, I see the inside. You don't actually love me. Why do religious leaders act as religious leaders if they don't actually love God? Why be a Christian? Why do the Christian thing if what's in here is not actually that convicted, not actually that connected to God himself? Control, power, status. The religious world is a world built for power grabs. It's, and, and every failure of the church throughout the generations has at its heart this same failure whether it's modern failures like Mars Hill Church or more less recent but still kind of modern Ted Haggard or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker or go on and on and on and on and on. The, the issue at the heart of it is exactly the same, a disconnect between the heart of God, the actual convictions themselves, the doctrines of God and the power that is inherent in it and a, just a simple desire to have control and power and status. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's that same disconnect between heart and body, between desire for God and desire for status, power, and control. Now, let's take a step back. At All Souls, we we ground our faith in in tradition. We we do. We, We are part of a theological tradition called the Reformed Tradition, and it comes out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s in Europe. Men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, who, who rebelled against the Catholic Church, first as kind of a theological rebellion that quickly became ecclesial and social and political and cultural. We, we find ourselves in that historic stream. So by no means are we saying that tradition is bad and we should should never look back into the past and into the history. By by no means. We are all the product of a a long history. And in fact, there are five kind of core theological tenets that came out of the Protestant Reformation that we would say are, are really core foundational ideas for our faith. And they are these, and they are in Latin, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, and soli Deo gloria. For those of you whose Latin is a little rusty, it means scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and the glory of God, gl- glory of Christ alone. But this is the foundation. These five solas, as they are known, are the foundation of our faith. And actually, during these next couple of weeks in our sermon series, we're going to look at each of these foundational theological ideas. And in fact, today we're talking about sola scriptura. From this passage, again, in verse 9, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. This is the failure of sola scriptura. When we swap out the word of God for other things. For other commands, other traditions, other useless, powerless ideas that are not the scriptures themselves. These five commandments form kind of the, the shape of our faith here at all souls. And I think this passage in a really powerful way, outlines why Sola Scriptura is so important. Because there is a consistent pattern that happens, not only in the Scriptures, but in the rest of the world and in our lives, when we take our eyes off Scripture as the sole foundation of our faith and sole place of authority. The same thing happens over and over and over and over again. There's a consistent pattern. We've seen it already in this passage. Jesus is going to lay it out really clearly in verse 10. He says he called the people to him and said to them, "Hear and understand." Jesus says things like this as little intros when he's going to say something really important, really profound, really core to his message. So he says, "Hear and understand." It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, this may not be revolutionary to us, but in the first century, to a group of Jews who have lived their whole lives under fairly strict dietary laws that have been a really kind of integral part of their faith practice, this is a massive theological shift for these people. So we have to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Here and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. Now, this subtle move that Jesus makes is a consistent teaching that he will track throughout his ministry, and then in fact, John, more than many others, picks up this same idea, and it's this, the way I would say it is this, that the problems in our world, as Jesus says it, what defiles us, okay? What are the core problems of our world are not primarily out there problems that can get into us, but they are in here problems, that come out of us. That's, that's the core shift here, right? That Jesus is saying, many of you, and in fact you Pharisees who just walked 90 miles to come jam me up about washing my hands, you believe that it's what's out there that's the problem and it can't get into you or else you'll be defiled. He goes, you have fundamentally misunderstood this whole situation. The problem is what's inside of you, and it actually leaks out into the world and creates much of the chaos and brokenness that you point at and go, that's the problem. Sure, that's a problem, but guess where it started? Here. It's only broken out there because it started broken in here. And what was inside of you came out of you, and now what you can see and experience as broken, you're identifying, Go well, there's a bunch of problems out there. Sure. Why? Because they came out of here. This is the core move that Jesus is making here. And it's a really big theological shift, a really big practical shift for these people. And we've got to see it because this is the consistent pattern. When we take our eyes off scripture and we look out into other places for authority, this happens over and over and over and over again. Instead of identifying the problems as being primarily in here problems, we will name out their problems as the primary problems. And here's where that goes super sideways. When the problems are out there problems then the solutions are out there solutions but when the problem is an in here problem we're forced to seek an in here solution that's what Jesus wants us to see and we do this over and over and over the scripture reminds us over and over and over the problems in here the problems in here the problems in here the problem with that is I don't like that I would much rather the problem be you than me for obvious reasons you're way worse than me I don't want to deal with this I'd much rather just distance myself from you okay so that's what Jesus is trying to see listen as long as you identify the problems as being out there you will look for out there solutions more rules more regulations more traditions more refinement more clarification about what, what, what the limits are because it's an out there problem, not an in here problem where we seek an in here solution. Okay? So, verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> Which I feel like Jesus is going, yeah, that was the point. Right? Like, hey, what do you mean? Did I know the Pharisees were going to be offended? Of course they were offended. Because w- worldly systems always want to make the issues out their issues. Why? Because out there issues are far more easily controlled, policed, recognized. It's way easier for me to look at your behavior and go, well, that's a problem. I have no idea about your heart. Because only Jesus can see your heart. So, so I'm, I'm going to use the phrase, virtue signaling, even though that, that's got connotations that I don't mean right away. Because one of the primary ways that religious people establish status is through virtue. We do the right things, we know the right words, we say the right things, we act out the right things, just like the Pharisees walking 90 miles to talk about hand-washing is virtue signaling. It's them saying, like, I care a lot about this, so I'm going to walk all this way to talk to you about hand-washing, because I really care about honoring God. That is an inherently out-there solution or an out-there behavior which reflects a conviction that the problems are out-there problems. The problem is that you're not washing your hands. It's not the problem. Okay? Out-there behaviors don't have to reflect our in-here convictions. Those are two separate things. Right? So out there behaviors, all that matters is that we perform them in a system that only values those kinds of signals, those kind of virtues, those kind of behaviors and practices. They care nothing about your internal life, your actual convictions. So I, I, I joke around all the time about Christians asking each other, how's your heart, right? Because it just seems like a very Christian like accountability group thing to ask. Right? How's your heart doing? My heart's good. You know? but, but in the end, like that is the question. That is the question. How is your heart? What is is the status of your heart? Because that's where the problems lie. And that's where the solutions begin is by working on our hearts. Now, the, the problem with this is we do believe, Christians do believe that our that behaviors out here are a reflection of our hearts. So as Christ gets a hold of our heart and sanctifies us, that ought to change our behavior, that that should flow out of us this way. And that's true. The problem is when we try to reverse the process and go, well, I see these behaviors, therefore your heart must be this. We can't do that. We don't have that power. We don't have that insight. Only Jesus can say, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So, this has been true of religious communities forever. It's a constant pit that we can fall into to only look at external behaviors and make assumptions, positive or negative, about what's going on in here. But it's actually becoming more and more the norm in non-religious settings too. As political and social causes replace religious ones, you see this same kind of virtue signaling and external values and statuses becoming the norm in these secular kind of uh, arenas. In that review of the book that I read, the author, Ed West, says this, modern-day identity politics is dangerous because it unleashes a competition for status that can never really end. Many idealists hope to make the world fairer by raising the status of one group, often by increasing the prestige of their ancestors through historical reinterpretation. Yet status is a zero-sum game. And unlike wealth, the pie cannot be expanded. If your group rises in status, others must fall. And the psychological and even physical effects of losing status are real. Now, here's here's the key piece. Most of humanity's problems have, to some extent, been solved or alleviated by technology and progress. We have never been richer, healthier, or more at peace. But desire for status is one thing that can never be overcome because it is not enough that I succeed, others must fail. Status is zero sum, so if I go up, you go down. There's no way around that, and I'll be honest, I love this, I am a very competitive person. I love to win, I want to win, even more than that, I want you to lose, and even more than that, I want you to know that you lost to me the winner, and you are and forever will be the loser, in this scenario so I, I get like I, I have to actively fight this very thing in my own heart and in my own life I want to know who's winning who's losing as long as I'm winning and you're losing so I, I, I get this temptation I, I intentionally pursue arenas in my life where I know I can win I love scoreboards that tell me I'm winning And I intentionally pursue context and and, and culture in which those things are true. So I I get this. This is not a a problem I can't relate to personally. So this is massively important then for us to then go back to the Scriptures over and over and over to reorient our lives back to this core truth. That it's what's going on in here that matters. This is where the problems begin, and therefore this is where the solution then has to begin. Jesus sums up this point starting in verse 15. He says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? And I'll just say, these uh, Bible translators are very, very nice, very polite people. Um, this, is a, this is a fairly crass thing that Jesus is saying here. He's basically just going, don't, don't you know, like when you eat stuff, you just poop it out, right? Like how could that possibly defile your soul, right? Literally, this is the language that Jesus is using with Peter because he's like, how do you not get this? Have you not eaten anything? Have you never used the restroom? Do you not see the connection? Right? Because this couldn't possibly defile us. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, Maybe Jesus has never met my kids. They've been defiled, certainly, by eating with their hands. But you get Jesus' core point. You're, you're, you're conflating two things that don't connect. The, the things that, that, that are, exist out in the world, and you, you eat them, or you take them in, or you're experiencing them, they, that can't defile your soul. Now, can it tempt you to sin? Can it trigger things going on in your heart? Yeah, absolutely. It's not saying that. Because you can't identify primarily the outside stuff as the problem. The Jews were, were all caught up in dietary laws and foods and what you could touch and what you could not touch. And that's not really our thing. But every generation has had a thing. Victorian Christians thought sex was unclean and so pushed it away. Early American Christians thought racial intermarrying was unclean and pushed it away. Modern American Christians have said the real problem is abortion or gay marriage or rap music or economic inequality or gender norms or whatever the latest out there thing is that we can identify and then we can pin the downfall of humanity on and try to control to save the world. And over and over and over, we have missed the point. None of those things is the core problem. They are at most outworkings of a far more serious in here brokenness in all of us. The Bible forces us to look inside ourselves and acknowledge that the real problems are in here. And we hate that. Because if the real problems are in here, then we have to own that. We're we're culpable for that. Any brokenness we see out there, we we have to take responsibility for because it inevitably came from in here. And if the problems are in here, then the solution's in here, and, and that's a far more personal, far more vulnerable kind of situation because it's not just a control game, right? If the problems are out there, then I can just control my behavior. And Jesus looks at us and goes, don't be an actor. Don't be an actor. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross not primarily to solve out there problems, but to solve the in here problem. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things out there that are broken and deeply problematic and deeply troublesome. And many of the things that we've talked about, whether on the right or on the left, are the outworkings of sin in here. But if we concentrate out there and try to work backwards, we'll mess it all up. We have to start here and work out to those things only when we can own the culpability in our own heart the brokenness in our own heart and own that biggest problem that we can begin to see the kinds of change we desire to see so sola scriptura stands at the center of our belief And and by no means is this the only reason why we believe in Sola Scriptura, but this is the one that the text is talking about today, and part of honoring Sola Scriptura is honoring the text we have before us. So there are three reasons, I'll do this really quickly, three reasons why Sola Scriptura is so important and why we have to locate the center of authority in the Bible and not in other things. One. It keeps us from making our own righteousness. Romans 10.3 speaks to this. It says when when people ignore the righteousness of God, the the truth about how we become right in the world, then we make up our own righteousness. Which is just to say, we build a system that we can win at. We move the target to go, that's really what righteousness is. What really righteousness is, is caring so much about washing, I'm going to walk 90 miles. That's really what righteousness is. We make our own righteousness that fits the behavior patterns that we want to own. We just move the target. But, but making the scriptures, the center of authority, keeps us from doing that. It keeps our eyes on what Christ says, what the scriptures say is true righteousness. And the path to it. Owning our sin, repenting of sin, and clinging to the cross as our solution. Two, Keeping our eyes on the scripture reminds us that the real problems are in here problems and that we have to own that day after day after day after day that every impulse in us that wants to identify the problem is out there that we should stop and go, no, where did that begin? Yes, that's playing out and that's a real problem and that's really hurting people and that's really broken but but where did that begin? What was the core desire? What was the core brokenness in here that produced that outcome And scripture's cause us to do that? Third, then it reminds us that the only solution is an in-here solution. The only way to solve those problems in our lives are to own them ourselves, what the Bible calls repentance. To just go, it's me. I'm the problem. The problem is my broken heart. The problem is my malformed desires. The things I want in the world are are causing me to be selfish. They're causing me to be jealous. They're causing me to be anxious. They're causing me to feel these feelings that then cause me to act out in these certain ways and break relationships, hurt people. Now, I need Jesus to save me from my sins. It's not behavior change that works backwards. I need Jesus to make me a new person. we go to the scriptures as our sole authority we are reminded of those things over and over and over and every time we're going to go yeah but the problem is jesus goes nope you're the problem yeah but then this happened yep i know that started in you okay but if we only change that well no you you need me to change you first it corrects us because that consistent pattern that happens when we take our eyes off scripture is always that we go oh the problem's out here and the solution's out here and jesus goes no no no, the problem's in here the solution's in here the constant reminder of the scriptures and why we need them at the center of our authority let's pray Jesus we need you that's what your scriptures teach us we need you that that all of humanity has been looking for out there problems in political systems in leaders in 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 their own bootstrapping ability in virtue We've built systems of virtue that we just want to convince ourselves can solve all the problems. If we can just be more disciplined, if we can just be more obedient externally. God, that has caused so many problems. So many whitewashed tombs, so many hollow Christian leaders who can only perform and behave for so long before the, the vacuum in their hearts is exposed is what you call us actors when there is a disconnect between what we do and who we are God I, I ask that you break down that wall take off the mask take off the costume lay us bare before you so that we can own the brokenness in our own heart sin the sinful desires that we have all day long that cause all the strife in our lives, all the need, all the pain. Because only when we will do that that you can work and heal, renew and restore, save and forgive. So Lord, may we keep our eyes focused on your scriptures for that reminder alone trust in the testimony of the scriptures that tell us where the real problems are and where the real solution lies so that we can see you more clearly in jesus name amen now as always we're going to transition to a time of response and we do communion every single week and again this is this is a, a desire for repetition of the conviction that the problem is an in here problem and jesus's death on the cross is the solution the only solution to our in here problems and so we're reminded over and over and over jesus is the solution jesus is the solution because we spend six days a week trying to be convinced that there are other solutions out there and so we Come together on Sundays to remind each other there is one solution. It was accomplished on the cross two thousand years ago. Jesus's death for our sins and his subsequent resurrection is the power to see real change. Is the only solution. So, let's take a moment and and, and if you can, in your own heart and in your own mind, identify. What what are what are some out there solutions that I have become convinced of, and I have leaned on to solve the problems in my own heart, and and repent of those, acknowledge that man that that's not the solve. Maybe maybe it is a small solve to a small version of a problem, but it's not the real solution. Repent of overly leaning on out there solutions, and then come forward, and be reminded of. The one true solution. Let's do that together.